children are here who are rehearsing for later in December. I think they need to go now to practice with Stephanie. Are there any kids here who need to practice? Might be a smaller group. We will be in Mark chapter 15 again today. Verses 33 through 47, Mark chapter 15. And again, I just want to welcome those who are with us from their homes. And uh, I want to remember to look up towards the camera. I sometimes forget that. But um, Mark chapter 15, 33 through 47. I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Perhaps it was different than normal. Remember the days when we didn't feel like we were always having to rethink everything? Um, whether it's going to church or what to do about Thanksgiving or sending kids to school, uh, what to do about work, there's, there's no autopilot in life anymore. We're having to think about everything we do in ways we hadn't thought of before. And in trying to see the bright side, I realize there's something good in that. Because as we think everything over again, we're thinking about why we do what we do. We're thinking about whether certain things are important or not, or how important are they, or how important is it in relation to the other things that we do. So I'm kind of realizing that it's important to reflect on why we reflect or how we reflect when we think about the things we do. Because all of this rethinking that we do in life right now could be very healthy if we are rethinking it in the right ways. But it could also become very unhealthy, even dangerous, if we are rethinking everything in the wrong ways. It's just a reminder to me of how important it is that we we base our thinking on the right principles, the right truths, because we are very vulnerable right now, I think, to, to developing some really bad habits and some very bad ways of going about life if we're not thinking correctly about the, the sort of the hierarchy of importance. It makes me think of Romans 12, too which says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. So if we start rethinking everything in life based on the way the world thinks about things, we're in for trouble. But if we take this opportunity to rethink everything we do, from God's point of view, then I believe we'll come out stronger uh, than ever before. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to take his final breath from the cross. And I think most people who were standing there that day simply saw it as a man breathing his last breath before dying. But there was a small group that gathered at the cross that Mark draws our attention to here in this text that see things differently. They're not thinking the way everybody else is thinking. And we're going to meet them this morning. It's, it's this centurion. We're not told his name, but there's a centurion. There's a group of women. 
And then there's also this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. And while most of the crowd dispersed from that place after Jesus died, just to go about their business, to do whatever they had to do, there was this small group of people that saw something different and they act on it. And there's an example for us to follow in what they do. What is it that compelled them to be so different from the people around them? And what can we learn from their example? Now, this text seems quite unusual for the first Sunday of Advent. I understand that. It maybe would seem more fitting in the season of Lent uh, leading up to Easter. But next Sunday, we will finish our year-long study of Mark. So it'll be uh, the, the conclusion, chapter 16 of this study, and I wanted us to, to not have to wait until January to get there. But I believe that we'll see some really important truths for us as we come to this most um, uh, sober of texts in Mark chapter 15. So let's look at it now, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was himself also looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. In summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Father, as we come before your word today, uh, we realize that there is great power in the cross and that 
Lord, there's nothing we can add to that great power. And, and, and I pray that your truth will ring true to our hearts today, that we'll come to you with humility and respect and devotion as we receive your word today. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm humbled by the text this morning, and I realize anything I add to this will only take away from the power that's already here in what Christ has done. And I, I feel the words of Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The cross of Christ is where the power is, and the words of eloquent wisdom will only uh, deplete that power. So I dare not tamper with it. But I want to be doubly dependent on the word and on the spirit as God speaks to us today. But in looking at what happens here in this text, it does help us to, to kind of understand some of what's going on. And it says there in verse 33 that the sky was darkened. It was the sixth hour, and yet the sky was darkened. It shouldn't have darkened. And it's not just an eclipse. This was Passover. Passover was to have been at the time of a full moon. That's how they judged when Passover would occur. So this isn't an eclipse. Something miraculous is happening, and darkness comes in a mysterious and terrifying way. Then in verse 34, it says that Jesus cries with a loud voice these words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He's quoting Psalm 22. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Mark notes that the passing crowds must have not heard clearly what Jesus said. Those words, Eloi, Eloi, they mistook to be Elijah, Elijah. They thought he's calling to Elijah to have Elijah come and, and rescue him and save him. That's not what he's asking. They bring this sponge with sour wine on it and raise it on a reed to touch Jesus' lips, perhaps to try to make him stay alive a little longer, to extend the suffering even further. But Jesus rejects the sponge. And then it says he cries one last time and breathes his last breath. It's interesting, Mark mentions a number of times here the last breath that Jesus breathes. And I think there's some sort of a bookend to Genesis 2-7 where it talks about God breathing into Adam the breath of life. It's as if the breath of life that had gone into the first Adam has now gone out of the second Adam, marking the end. And then it says the temple veil is, is torn in two from, from top to to bottom, And of course, a whole series of messages could be given on all that that means. If we ever get the chance to study the book of Hebrews, maybe we'll take a whole year to go through the book of Hebrews, you'll understand more of what this means. But it's the, the essential truth that Jesus' death on the cross has opened up the way to God for all people to receive by faith. And instead of dwelling Long on this scene, Mark moves the attention quickly to those who now take care of Jesus' body. 
Every Sunday, we think about the cross and its implications for us. But now we move to this example of this centurion and of these women and of Joseph of Arimathea. And I want us to think about them for a little bit this morning. Who are they and, and what are they doing and what compels them to this act of, of devotion? There's a, a supernatural faith. There's something, I believe, even of the Holy Spirit working in them here. And there's an example for us to follow. And it's okay for us to look to people like this and, and to follow their example. Uh, we're told to imitate the faith of others. Paul said in Philippians 3.17, join in imitating me. He said, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. We are going to put our eyes on those who have walked according to that example. We're going to say, what is it that they did? What can I learn from them? As they stand before the cross where Jesus has just died. And first we see this centurion, this centurion who testifies to the truth of who Jesus is. He testifies to the truth of who Jesus is. In verse 39, it says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And what an incredible declaration that is to come from the lips of a Roman soldier, the one who has just overseen the execution of Jesus. How could he have known? How could he have understood? But by the grace of God that he has been awakened to this profound truth, he has just beheld something awesome. And he speaks it with boldness. This truly is the Son of God. We only see the centurion one more time in verses 44 and 45 when he's reporting to Pilate that Jesus has, in fact, died. And then there are these women, the women who show their love for Jesus by watching over him and by attending to him, not only in his life, but in his death. Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James, the younger, Salome, they're mentioned here by name, but there are others who are also a part of this group. And Mark mentions they came to Jerusalem from Galilee. Jesus spent most of his ministry in Galilee, and they were part of the, 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 the disciples' uh, group, and they assisted Jesus, and they served. And while the men are more or less in hiding, the women remain faithful to helping Jesus and assisting Jesus, even with the burial. Verse 47 notes that they notes, they see where Jesus' body is, is laid. They are going to be tending to his grave, and they are going to be the eyewitnesses, the first to see his resurrection. We have the centurion, we have the women, and we have Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph gives generously, he gives courageously, it says, to provide an honorable tomb for Jesus. To provide an honorable tomb. Verse 43 describes him there as a respected member of the council. Now you might recall from a few weeks back, it was the council that met in the middle of the night. Some 70 leaders uh, who, who decided Jesus has got to be dealt with quickly and decisively. And he must have been in on those deliberations in some way. But clearly, he has seen in Jesus something different than others in that council. 
Verse 43 also says that he is looking for the kingdom of God. He is looking for what Jesus has been proclaiming all this time. And what's really miraculous is that he hasn't given up hope. Here Jesus has now died. He's seen him breathe his last there on the cross, and yet he is still looking for the kingdom of God. And he is doing this by giving uh, his tomb to Jesus. Verse 43 tells us also that he took courage. And I got to tell you, it took courage for him to do what he did, to stand up against all the others who had condemned Jesus to death. There's great risk. He might be out of a job. He might be out of a position of respect and authority. His reputation could be ruined because of what he is doing here. It takes great courage for him to give so generously to Jesus. And then verse 46 says, And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb. And it's it said so plainly, and yet, think about what must have been involved in this. Taking him down is the word Mark, the phrase Mark uses there. And maybe you've seen paintings of this in an art museum or elsewhere. This 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 scene of, of Joseph removing Jesus from the cross, laying him on the linen shroud, wrapping his body. How difficult that must have been. Reflecting on this, the church for more than a thousand years has always placed a, a simple white linen cloth over the communion elements when we share in communion together. The bread and, and the cups have a, have a white linen cloth because the body of Christ is wrapped in linen. But what is being demonstrated here by the centurion, by these women, by Joseph of Arimathea? Well, think about what would have happened if these faithful had not acted in the way that they did. Jesus' body would have been ripped from the cross and tossed into a common grave. He might have been left there and maybe birds would have picked at his eyes or dogs gnawed at his limbs. They would, the, the, these, these followers would not stand to let the body of Jesus be desecrated like that. So these, these actions are a demonstration of what we might call true piety. Piety. And, and I just want to ask you, when was the last time you thought about the word piety? Especially in a, in a positive way. Did you know that piety is, is considered a virtue? And I think most people today, even when, when, when we do think of piety, if we ever think of piety, we think of it very negatively. We, we think about it as a bad thing. It sounds sort of like this sanctimonious fluff, like, like self-righteousness. And if the word pious is ever used, it's a put-down. It's, it's, it's a criticism. Like, he's so pious. But I think we need to reconsider this assumption because it has a lot to say about who we are as people and where we're going as a culture and how we make the decisions that we make. Because piety is a virtue. It means reverence or devotion shown towards your family, towards your nation, or towards your God. And deeply entwined in any true sense of piety is the concept of humility, which is really the exact opposite of sanctimoniousness or 
or self-righteousness. To be pious in the true sense is to be humble, it's to be contrite, it's to be fully devoted to the honor and the respect of God. Sometimes it's even called justice toward God. Justice toward God. Now we hear a lot about justice today, and it's almost always linked up with the idea of social justice. It's a buzzword, and uh, it's, it's usually taken in political or economic sense, but, but we'll never have social justice if we don't have justice toward God. We'll never get things figured out politically or economically if we don't understand how we relate to God and where that all begins. In the Protestant church, we're, we're less familiar with the term piety and maybe more familiar with the term godliness partly because it's maybe a more biblical term. And we find this in in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul speaks of living godly lives in this present age. Or in 2 Timothy 3, 12, where it says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. These words, godly and pious, are essentially interchangeable. But what is it? As we draw this to a close, I simply want to ask this question. What is piety? What is godliness? And how does it affect us today? How should it affect the decisions that we make? What is there in this example for us to follow? And as I wrestled with this, I, I realized, you know, true piety can be hard to describe, but, but I can, and I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it. And as I thought about this, I, I thought of my grandma. We visited my grandma on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. We were hoping that she could join us, but um, they weren't going to let her out of the assisted living where she lives. And so we gathered around her window uh, Thanksgiving afternoon, and we had, I don't know, quite a crowd there. But um, we all talked to her for a while, and, and, and she's, you know, 90 years old, and she's been a lifelong uh, born-again Roman Catholic. She loves the Lord, and she loves to study her Bible every day. She is a captain of prayer. Um, And when she moved into the assisted living a few years ago, her world became much smaller, and we never had any idea how much smaller it was going to get with all this COVID stuff. But while so much of 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 her life has been pared away, what remains is her family and her faith. And I think that sums up her life. What more does she need? And that's how she sees things. She is the most positive, optimistic, uh, well uh, adjusted person you could imagine, especially under these circumstances. But because of her faith and, and her devotion to her Savior, that has been the habit of her whole life. Um, there is a joy in her that I believe is a demonstration of that piety, of that devotion that is true of her because of God. So when I think of piety, I think of my grandma. And then as I pondered this question further, what is piety? I was sitting in my study, sitting in my chair down in my, in my basement, in my very little study. I've described this before. It's about a 
It's just a glorified closet. But I'm sitting in that chair, and I look across from the chair. I have a kneeler. I have this kneeler, and I built this kneeler, oh, 20 years ago or so when I was a Bible college student. And, and I constructed it uh, with a little desk on it so I could put my Bible there or, or something else that might help me as I pray. And every morning, the first thing I, I try to do each day is I go down into my study and I read some scripture and then I pray. And this might all sound very pious, maybe in the sanctimonious sort of way, except that I have to admit, most mornings, I still have to fight with myself to move from the chair to the kneeler. Because I think to myself, you know what, I can pray just as well from my chair. God doesn't care. In fact, I usually tell myself, I could probably pray better from my chair. Then I won't be so, you know, uptight or, or uh, I don't know. There's a million excuses you can give yourself. What does God care? Isn't it just legalistic ritualism? Can't I just pray while I'm brushing my teeth or while I'm driving to work? I wish I could say that I always did the right thing when I have that debate in my head, but I don't. But I think piety is part of remembering that prayer is offered to Almighty God. That if I think in terms of justice toward God, the kneeling is a pretty small thing to do in the grand scheme of things. So I think about that kneeler, and I remember why we kneel when we pray. And then the last thing I think of is I think about worshiping God in church each Sunday. Worshiping God in church each Sunday. And I have been told recently by important people that Christians who insist on keeping churches open right now are being selfish. And these important people have told me that Christians who insist on gathering for worship are unwilling to sacrifice their own personal preferences and pleasures for the well-being of everybody else, and that we shouldn't be here right now. So it forces me to ask myself, why are we here? Is it just because we want to be and we like this and we feel better when we come? And and I guess that would be true if Sunday morning were a rock concert, a light show, and a, a, a pep talk to get you through the week. And maybe that's what a lot of churches have become. But if we gather out of respect for God, out of justice toward God, out of a sense that we are here in devotion, in humble godliness and piety, out as a practice to, to reverence and honor him, as much as we need it, then there's now a whole much greater reason for us to gather in his name. Something that goes deeper down for sure than just a selfish motivation. The devil would love for all of us to believe that acts of piety are just a form of spiritual pride. But I want us to see from the example of the centurion and the women and Joseph of Arimathea that nothing could be further from the truth. That true piety, that true justice toward God is the greatest form of spiritual humility. And that Paul says in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Gracious Father, we bow our hearts before you today, and we confess our irreverence. We confess our um, pragmatic way of seeing everything, that it's all about, you know, what will result from what we do. But Lord, we just want to remember that what matters most is our humble, even pious devotion to you. Help us to come before you in a spirit of brokenness. To remember what it means to act justly toward you. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.